0: Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Almighty God, thou who dwellest between the cherubim, all honor and glory belongs unto thee. And though Babylon may have been allowed to have lifted her ugly head for a thousand two hundred and three score years, you did promise in your word that she would be destroyed without remedy when once your Son took His throne and dashed in pieces the kingdoms of this world and His kingdom would fill this world and it would never come to an end, but it would destroy all other kingdoms. Thou, O Lord, art God above all. We are Thy people. All we have in this world that counts is our knowledge of Thee and that Thou art our God. With Thee on our side We are afraid of no man, nor any group of men. But we pray now, O Heavenly Father, that you will bless us by your Spirit in this hour, that as we look into your word, we will rightly divide the word of truth, and that we might come to a proper understanding of what you have ordained for the the churches of the New Testament to practice in their assemblies. Forgive us where we have been negligent in your word, Forgive us any secret sins as a congregation, and, O Lord, keep us back as a congregation from any presumptuous holding on to of error, and grant that we might shed ourselves of all Babylonish garments, and worship thee in spirit and in truth as perfectly as you reveal to us. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the head of this church, amen. I want to finish this evening what we began this morning, and that is a study of foot washing as a public ordinance. Is foot washing an ordinance of public worship? Did Jesus Christ really intend for His saints to line up across from each other and wash clean feet because of what He said in John chapter 13? Where we started this morning was to ask, how do we determine what a church does in its public assemblies? And we found by looking at a few scriptures, not all of them, but a few, that a church had better regulate its assemblies by what the apostles taught. Since the apostles were those directed to teach Gentile churches, Jesus Christ, being a minister to Jews, gave them a variety of instructions, some Jewish, some ministerial, some apostolic, some that do apply to us. But you won't find an instruction that applies to you as a New Testament church taught by Christ without being confirmed by the apostles. The apostles are the ones that give us the tradition Gentile churches are to hold fast. We have no instruction, either by Jesus or by the apostles, that we ought to wash feet. Jesus did say those words to some disciples, and we'll look at them in just a moment. But you show me where He told a church to wash feet. You show me where in the book of the Acts of the Apostles a church ever did wash feet. Show me in the epistles to churches where an apostle ever instructed a church to do it or how to do it or condemning them for not doing it. We do not have any evidence that the apostles ever literally washed each other's feet. We don't have any evidence that the churches of the New Testament ever practiced such a thing as an ordinance of public worship but we do know of a church that does practice it and since we just sang Babylon is fallen why don't we look at Revelation 17 and remind ourselves of a point that is not wasted when considering true doctrine and false doctrine revelation 17 if God is willing There'll be a time where we'll study this and other chapters in the book of Revelation for our comfort and encouragement as we see God's providential dealings with His churches in preserving them from this great enemy. Revelation 17. I'll begin at the first verse. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore That sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration, the Apostle John is privileged to see a vision of the Church of Rome and its degenerated, corrupted state. He wanted with great admiration to see that it was a Church claiming to be a Church of Jesus Christ that was in fact the great enemy of the Church of Christ and was filled with the blood of saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The point I want to make from this chapter is the name of the Roman Catholic Church if you don't understand the first six verses as applying to the church at Rome, then you'll have to ask some questions later. That should be obvious to any Bible reader. I'll give you a couple points. Verse 18 tells us, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. When John was writing sometime between 60 and 90 A.D., what city, pray tell, was ruling over the kings of the earth? It was the city of Rome, sitting on the seven hills, as Rome has been known since its founding as the city that sits on seven hills, that governed the nations of the earth. And the Roman Catholic Church committed fornication with all the kings of the earth, in corrupting them and their kingdoms and the churches in their kingdoms. But the name of this woman, the name of this church, the name of this enemy of Christ, is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Rome is the mother of all false churches of Jesus Christ. Those are her harlot daughters. And she is also the mother of all the abominations that they engage in. And when we deal with this subject of foot washing, the practice of humbling yourself to get down and to wash the feet of another person, to show your humility and your service and your affection and your thanksgiving to them, there's nothing wrong with that. But for a church to make that a binding ordinance of public worship is an abomination. Because you are bringing something into the churches of Jesus Christ that God didn't intend to be there. And when we come to the subject of foot washing, as I read to you this morning, the Catholics definitely believe in it. In fact, we're only ten days late from when they celebrated it on Monday Thursday. Foot washing is called a Monday to them. That's why it's called Monday Thursday. It's called a monday. The bishops wash feet. The pope washes feet. And any loyal Catholics who want to fully practice their religion will wash feet. Maybe not in this nation because loyal Catholics in this nation who fully practice their religion don't fully practice it like they do in the other parts of the world. But it's a Catholic practice. Now, that doesn't prove that it's wrong. The Catholics practice some things that are right. You'd have to give me a few minutes to think of one but I'm sure they practice a few things that are right. They believe a few points of doctrine that are right. But when you see an abomination or a practice held to by Rome, it ought to open your eyes a little bit wider as you read Scripture. The next point I made this morning is that when we do not take a literal view of John 13, when we go into John 13 and come out of that chapter without applying it literally, We are accused of resting Scripture. Yet the very people that accuse us never preach on the verses greet ye one another with an holy kiss. If we ought to take Jesus' personal discussion with His disciples on how they were to treat one another and develop from that a ritualistic ceremony that doesn't even meet the purpose of what Jesus did, if we're to do that, why not take the words salute one another with an holy kiss and come up with a kissing service. And I'm not trying to be funny one bit. Because if you're going to be consistent with the Word of God, which is what we want to do, you have to take one or the other. Because the two stand together. In fact, what has more weight in Scripture to practice? A kissing service or a foot-washing service? There isn't one piece of apostolic evidence that there was ever a foot-washing service other than what Jesus did to His disciples. But we have five times... The apostles telling us we ought to greet one another with a holy kiss. The same people that will accuse us of resting the word of God for not being literalists in John 13, what would they do if we took them to Luke 11, where Jesus said, when asked how they ought to pray, Jesus said, when ye pray, say. Now, is that specific and plain? Should that be taken literally? No. But it sounds like it should be taken literally. When ye pray, say. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we'd end up quoting the Lord's Prayer every time we met. Why have we thrown that out? Because we understand that Jesus meant this is an example. This is a form. This is a way of praying. This prayer contains the contents of a good prayer. And therefore, we should pray after that manner. But I'll tell you, there is a church that loves to take everything like that and make it literal. The same church that washes feet on Monday, Thursday also quotes the Lord's Prayer in their public assemblies and considers it an integral part of certain forms of worship. The same church takes the words where Jesus said, this is my body, and believes that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. The same church wants you to wear a crucifix around your neck, thinking that it contains some magical power because Jesus hung on a cross. They're literalists. And we need to guard ourselves against a slavish literalism that will run us right back into the arms of the mother church. We want to be literal where God expects us to be literal. We don't want to be literal where God expects us to understand the lesson, the spirit of what he's teaching, and not the simple words. Washing feet was a popular custom among the Jews and their neighbors. We saw that from the book of Genesis. You can run it all the way through the book of Luke. When Jesus entered the house of Simon the Pharisee and was not offered water for his feet. The custom of the day, the custom in Genesis, the custom in the New Testament was to offer water for the washing of your own feet. No one got down and washed your feet. They gave you water so that you could do it. Your feet were dirty. You wanted to wash them before you ate. You wanted to wash them before you might retire for the evening. You wanted to wash them and be comfortable. It was It's refreshing after walking in dusty soil for long periods of time without enclosed shoes as we wear. The custom was offering of water for a person to wash their own feet. Jesus Christ did something different, as we'll see this evening. And it's also something different that Paul expected of widows. I want you to look at 1 Timothy 5 again before we go to John 13. 1 Timothy 5, consider what we've already accumulated in knowledge. The apostles had better establish our practice for public assemblies and public worship. There is no evidence of foot washing in a New Testament church as an ordinance of public worship. The Roman Catholic Church, however, does practice it. The fact that we will look at John 13 and not apply it literally in a particular verse is the same thing we do in Luke chapter 11 with the Lord's Prayer. The same thing we do five times with the apostles in their commandment for us to greet one another with a kiss. But the most important point and the point that opened my eyes the most was 1 Timothy 5.10. Don't you ever read John 13 without reading Paul in 1 Timothy 5.10. And I'll tell you what, before you ever get to John 13, you know one thing about John 13. You cannot apply it, literally, as Jesus teaching, this is what I want you to establish as an ordinance of public worship for all members to do once a quarter, once a year, or however often, as a requirement of public worship. 1 Timothy 5.10 proves that that was not an ordinance of public worship. And once you have that, then you go to John 13 and you study its context. You find out, you know what? Jesus was giving an example, as you'll see. And you say, I'm doing the same thing with John 13 as I do with the other teachings of Christ to his disciples. I look for their intent, like the Lord's Prayer. 1 right. Timothy 5.10, verse 9, Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. Well reported of for good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. In those two verses, the apostle sets forth, hear me, the apostle sets forth limiting criteria to select very special widows from widows and general. In a given church, you might have 20 widows. But by running those 20 widows through 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10, you might end up with only one or two that are widows indeed. Why, many of them might be under the age of 60. Some of them might have married more than once. Some of them might not have a very good reputation for good works. Some may have had good works, but not have been diligent. Some may not have been known for lodging strangers. Some may have never humbled themselves to wash the saints' feet. These are restrictive criteria that cannot be true of the entire congregation or they don't serve a purpose. These are private, domestic, individual good works which every church member ought to do but which not all church members will do so that when you're screening widows, you will eliminate... All widows who do not deserve the treatment and the honor and the esteem and the support that the widows indeed will from this chapter. In a given church, there are strong members and there's weak members. There's members that have great reputations for good works. There's members that have reputations for hardly any good works. They're chair warmers. We have that in our assembly to some degree. Every assembly of the churches of Christ will be that way. There are little weak sheep that need to be exhorted, provoked, warned, rebuked, reproved, and there are strong members that do the reproving and the rebuking and do the warning. They're the rams. They're the ones that the the Apostle Paul refers to as, ye which are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. There are those in Galatians chapter 6, ye which are spiritual are responsible to restore those that are overtaken in a fault. And the reason I say all that is when we look at this text, Some widows will be less than 60 years of age. They can't be taken into the number. Some widows will have been married more than once. They can't be taken into the number. Some widows will not have washed the saints' feet. They don't qualify for the number. These qualifications are domestic, individual, personal responsibilities that every saint ought to practice if they want to achieve being a widow indeed. Every woman ought to practice to achieve being a woman, indeed, t- a widow indeed sometime in her life. By virtue of the fact that the washing of the saints' feet is included in these two verses proves that it could not have been an obligatory ordinance of public worship or all the widows would have done it, and stating it here would be ridiculous. It wouldn't even make sense. Look at the other duties around it. The lodging of strangers. That is not an ordinance of public worship. That is a duty that God expects all of us ought to do. Some will, some won't. Some will be diligent at it, some will be slothful at it. And so it is with the washing of the saints' feet. Some will say, well, what do we do today since we don't wash feet? The same thing we do with the kiss. We relegate it to a custom of that day, that Jesus took a custom of that day and enhanced it. Just like he took a custom of that day, the kiss, and modified it with the word holy and charitable and commanded the brethren to do it. We look at that custom, and this is the way we understand Scripture. That was a custom of that day. The exhortation in spirit was that we ought to greet one another, show affection and kindness toward one another as we have opportunity. And I believe we practice that rather well in this congregation. In this text, if we had a widow that met all the other qualifications, we would look for her willingness to humble herself and perform lowly, degrading service because that's what's washing the feet of another person involves. And if a widow had done that, it would satisfy. Some say, well, how can you do that with the expression if she have washed the saints' feet? Doesn't it say if she have washed the saints' feet? Well, what do we do with the expression, expression if she have brought up children? We look at that expression, it doesn't say bear, so that doesn't mean her own, but she has to have brought up children. So we understand that, that it would include the children of others, that if it's a woman who's 60 plus years of age and meets all the other criteria, but she spent her life for her husband and herself and never gave any of her energies and time and affection to children in their upbringing, she wouldn't qualify because she'd be manifesting a spirit contrary to the word of God and to nature. If you look at these qualifications closely and you consider them, you'll see that not one of them, and I'm not reasoning in a circle, not one of them is a requirement of public worship on the part of any church in the New Testament. They're obligations that we are all held accountable for individually, individually, which means that some of us will do them and some of us won't. Therefore, some widows would have done them, done the washing of the saints' feet, and would be included in the number, and some would be excluded by that qualification, By the fact that it's mentioned here, with individual private duties, it was not an ordinance of public worship. Paul isn't dealing with public and corporate worship in this paragraph, verses 9 and 10. He's dealing with the individual things that a woman does to show her character. Not what a church does to show its character, but what a woman can do to show her godliness and submissive spirit to serve others because that is what she'll be doing if she's ever put in the number of widows indeed. Why does Paul use the words if she have washed the saints' feet? Because that is the greatest example of humble and lowly service, degrading service for another person ever shown in the Bible. And we have cross-references to prove that. Why did Abigail make the statement that she did? Because in one sentence, there is no faster, better, more to the point way to say that you are submissive, you are humble, and you are willing to serve than to say, make me a servant to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. That's what she said. Another example was Jesus Christ, the Lord and Master, as we'll see, of His servants, the disciples, washing their feet. To wash the saints' feet, not give them water to wash their own, But to wash their feet is an example, as Jesus will call it in John 13, of low, humble service. And a widow was to prove that before she was taken into the number. We looked at the requirements for a bishop or a deacon from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Again, if you look at those requirements, none of them, none of them, not one of them, are ordinances of public worship where it shouldn't be listed there as a qualification because every man would qualify. I mean, Timothy would say, Paul, what do you mean? Every man in my congregation has that one. Those are individual duties. Individual duties of men to be sober. In a congregation, there are no two men equally sober. Some are more sober than others. And the ones that are sober qualify under that particular qualification for the ministry. Consider these things. Before you get to John 13... Jesus was a minister of the circumcision dealing without a church as we know it, not giving instruction for local churches. The apostles did that. Talking to his disciples and settling a dispute among them. Do you know what those disciples were arguing about all the way to the Last Supper? What were they arguing about? Jesus is leaving. Who's going to be the greatest? The most important task Christ had as far as their characters and the working relationships between them before he left was to settle that there were no positions of authority among them. They were not going to be over each other. And I'll tell you, he gave them the greatest example possible when he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you, and that is to get down and serve one another. Let's go to John 13. Someone will say, well, why do we even go to John 13? You've already settled the matter from 1 Timothy 5.10. You are a wise and perceptive hearer. You want to go into the words of Jesus Christ and establish doctrine for New Testament churches? Where will you stop? We better stand up next Sunday and quote the Lord's Prayer. And while I keep referring to that, it is simply one of many examples. When was the last time we prayed in a closet? When was the last time you prayed in a closet? Maybe you did this week. Jesus said, when you pray, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. Did you enter into a closet? Or do we understand the intent, the lesson that he's trying to teach? We are not going to be straitjacketed by a literalistic taking of the words of Christ, or we're going to end up in closets. You can pray anywhere you want. The lesson of Jesus Christ is don't pray before men to be seen of them. That's why he said closet. Jesus himself went aside into a mountain to pray. How many of you have climbed Paris Mountain or Table Rock recently simply to pray and you did it all night long as Jesus did it? Now, he did it. And I'm not trying to be ridiculous. I'm trying to be Consistent consistent. We understand those passages of Scripture, and nobody even raises a hand. But do you know why? There are hearts and souls, probably in this room, and there will be hearts and souls outside of this room, trembling and upset over what I'm preaching right now. Do you know why? They never get upset about the other things I'm mentioning, but they get upset about this because Daddy did it, and they did it. Every, Every one of us are subject to get into habits and ruts and modes of behavior and conduct in a church to where we assume it's right? Why do the children of Methodists generally turn out to be Methodists? Why do the children of Primitive Baptists generally turn out to be Primitive Baptists? Why do the children of Catholics generally turn out to be Catholics? Why do the children of Buddhists generally turn out to be Buddhists? Because you assume from a child, since that's all you've heard, that's got to be right. And now I'm asking you to squelch the tradition that's welling up inside you and saying we ought to hold to this tradition and make it a commandment and see if God has made it a commandment. Find it in the Acts of the Apostles or in the Epistles of the Apostles. And even if you you do find it, which you won't, 1 Timothy 5.10 tells us it was not an ordinance of public worship. John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is a funny chapter in that it's difficult to figure out where, when some of the events took place precisely. I consider John 13, the first few verses, to be the most difficult dilemma in all of the New Testament. The way I understand, and I'm telling you that, it doesn't affect one thing from John 13. I'm telling you that because it's the truth. The supper at which Jesus washed the disciples' feet. What supper was it? Answer that question. The position I take on John 13 is that through the 17th verse, we are dealing with the supper at Simon's house two days before the Passover. And that from the 18th verse through the end of the 14th chapter, we're dealing with what is called the Lord's Supper. There's several reasons for that, and I wouldn't be surprised if I changed next week on what I'm telling you right now. Now I don't say that very often, but John, 13, listen. If you want, if you want to spend your time some time in Godspeed this week and have yourself a good exercise, answer this question: What supper ended in John 13:2? You say, well, it's the Passover supper. Answer John 13:1. And if you make it the Passover Supper, we know the Lord's Supper was part of the Passover Supper. And if it's the Passover Supper in verse 2, then why are they still dipping sops in verse 26 since supper ended? John's epistle is not written with any chronological care to details. If you've read John, you know that. John is just trying to pull together all the things that Jesus did and said. And most of his miracles aren't even listed in John. You don't have a chronological record of various events in the life of christ if you notice in john chapter one doesn't begin with his birth there's no mention of mary it just simply starts out the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and there he goes from his baptism forward with the sayings of christ collected many things in john not found in the other gospels but i'll tell you this the supper doesn't matter a supper ended and for right now let's just leave that because it's not germane to the foot washing itself but a supper ended in verse 2. The devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. When did Judas get very angry with the Savior in the last few days? It was at the supper at Simon's house when Mary brought in a very expensive bottle of ointment and broke on the feet of Jesus. And he jumped up and said that that money should have been saved for the poor. Now, the, the Holy Spirit tells us in parentheses he couldn't care less about the poor he was a thief, and he carried the bag, and he wanted more money in the bag for him to steal and we 're told in luke chapter twenty two that when that occurred, the Satan entered into him and he went and conspired with the Jews and sought for an opportunity to betray christ and Then, after Jesus Christ identifies him at the Last Supper, Satan enters into him and he goes out and does it because he knows that Jesus Christ is about to make his way to Gethsemane to pray, but that is a consideration for probably next Sunday as we study Luke 22. But let's look at the ending of this supper. I want to start with verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God, and went to God, He riseth from supper. Let's not ignore verse 3 as we study foot washing. The Holy Spirit put it there for a reason. Jesus knew something, and based on that knowledge, he rose from supper to wash feet. What was the knowledge? The Father had given all things into his hands. What were those all things? We're going to study it next Sunday in Luke 22. I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me a kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. As Jesus Christ was approaching his death, resurrection, and future exaltation, he knew that God had given him power and a kingdom. And he was about to receive that kingdom and sit down at God's right hand and leave that kingdom in the hands of men on this earth. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. Keep that in mind. Jesus understands he's going back to heaven. And he's leaving his kingdom in the authority of these very weak men who had accompanied with him for three and a half years. Now, he's going to fill them with power. He's going to enable them for their task. But they still have some problems. And the Bible tells us that that is the basis that Jesus rose from supper. That is what Jesus was thinking. He was thinking, God's given me a kingdom. He's given me power. He's put all things into my hands. I've come from God and I'm returning to God and he rises to wash their feet. Verse, five, verse 4, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. As the Son of God, as their Lord and Master, he was sitting there, the focal point of their attention. He gets up from his seat, takes off the garments that would hinder his action, grabs a towel, and proceeds to wash their feet with that towel girded around himself making his way around the room. Verse 5 tells us after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples. Notice that the apostrophe occurs after the S, which means he washed more than one. That's plural disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now he's making his way around this room. And he comes to Simon Peter. And we're going to get a great example of Simon's temperament in this text. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? I mean, Peter's witnessed him washing feet, but he said, Lord, you're not going to wash mine, are you? Are you going to wash my feet? You don't have to do that. Typical choleric, speaking out quickly without much regard to the fact that the Savior probably had a good end in mind. Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, and this is an important verse, brethren, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Did, Jesus, did Peter know that Jesus was washing feet? Then Jesus didn't have washing feet in mind, did he? Think about what it says. Did Peter know that Jesus was washing feet? Well, Jesus said to Peter in this seventh verse, What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. What I am doing to you, Peter, you don't understand, but you will understand. Did Peter understand that Jesus was going to wash his feet? Of course he did. That's why he said in the sixth verse, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Are you going to wash my feet, Lord? Peter understood the washing of feet. But Jesus was doing something beyond the washing of feet. Jesus was showing humility, service, submission. Peter didn't understand that yet. And he's going to explain it. And he'll explain it in just a few verses. Because he he follows up on verse 7 in the 13th, in the 12th verse. When he says, know ye what I have done to you? They still didn't know, but he's just about to explain it to them. But I want you to notice that. Peter says, are you going to wash my feet, Lord? And the Lord says to him, what I do thou thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter, I know this may be strange, it may be peculiar, that I'm down here washing your feet, and I know you may feel uncomfortable with it, but there's a lesson behind it. There's something more to it than the bare washing of feet. So put up with it. Peter saith to him, and here is classic. Classic response of someone who doesn't think before they speak. Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Now, Jesus had just said, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing. And if it's the Savior saying that, then you know he's doing something good. And Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Thou shalt never wash my feet. Boom. Period. And it's a big period when a cleric says it like that. Now, Jesus, it doesn't take Jesus long to soften a choleric, and I I love this exchange. Jesus answered him, and I just imagine this being done very kindly and graciously, because that is our Savior. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Well, now, Peter thinks on that about one second. They never think longer than that before they speak. And he says unto him in in verse 9, Peter says back to the Lord, Lord! Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I mean, if it's that important to you, take on the rest of me that's exposed. You know, they're covered with clothing, but hands and head and feet are exposed. Take on the rest of me if it's that important to you. And brethren, this is totally off the subject, but for those of you who believe that understanding the temperaments is helpful, this is a classic illustration. If you haven't met a person like this, come and ask me after the service and I'll point out a couple. Boom, boom, boom. From one extreme to the other in a matter of two seconds. But he does say something. Don't laugh too loud, some of you. He does say something. I mean, would you tell me what Nathaniel contributed to the twelve apostles? Who? Did somebody say who? There are some apostles that we don't have one word recorded. Simon Peter saith to him in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. Let me chase a short rabbit. I want to warn us all, including myself, against a literalistic slavery to individual words. Notice the last part of verse 9. The words are, and ye are clean, but not all. The Holy Spirit in the very next verse says that those words were, ye are not all clean. Those are not precisely a word-for-word translation, are they? But is it a word-for-word translation? Absolutely. I can show you a number of examples in the Bible where a group of words is called a word by Almighty God. I'm thinking of one right offhand in Hebrews chapter 12, and this word, yet once more. There's three words that are called a word. Don't be so slavish. You can't understand why an Oxford King James Bible and a Cambridge King James Bible might have a different word here or there, and they do. Some people like to take the exchange between Simon Peter and his Lord, beginning in verse 6 and running it down through verse 11, and make it a discussion of legal and practical salvation. And here's how it works. Peter says to the Lord... In verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus says to him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. What Jesus meant was a legal washing. That unless you had a legal washing, you were not justified in the presence of, present, in the presence of Christ and you were not one of Christ. Peter, understanding that, says in verse 9, Well then, if it's, if it's so important and my eternal salvation rests upon my legal justification, then wash my hands and my feet. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, He that is washed, that is already legally justified, doesn't need to wash the rest of himself again because that sacrifice has been put away forever, Hebrews chapter 10. And all he needs is to wash his feet because it's his feet by which we walk through life. And that's our practical salvation by which we need practical cleansing and the forgiveness of sins. Now listen, everything I just said I believe is true. But everything I just said, I don't think Peter and Jesus understood nor intended in this conversation. I believe all that. I believe that we need to be legally saved. I believe that we need to be justified in order to have a place with Christ and to be found in Christ. I believe that our walk in this world is the only cleansing we need. It's forgiveness of our sins practically because legally all our sins have been forgiven forever. But that isn't the lesson Jesus Christ is trying to teach here. Jesus Christ is trying to teach here that they ought to serve one another. Now, when you come down to verse 11, it tells us, For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. We know that the words, And ye are clean, but not all, in verse 10, do have a figurative application, and they do not apply to foot washing. Because the Holy Spirit tells us they don't. They apply to Judas. You say, well, how can you draw the switch there? Because the Holy Spirit drew the switch there. Right. And do you know how else you can tell he drew the switch there? Watch the pronouns. Jesus is kneeling at the feet of Peter and washing the feet of Peter or standing behind Peter. Forgive me. There's some people in this country that would get real excited to hear me say that he was kneeling because some people wash feet kneeling and some don't. And the kneelers say that the ones that stand are wrong and the standers think the kneelers are wrong. Because the woman stood behind Jesus and washed his feet in Luke chapter 7. It's a big, listen, once you depart from Scripture, where do you stop? The one cuppers accuse the many cuppers of not practicing communion the right way. And the many cuppers accuse the one cupper of spreading disease. I think we ought to try both from time to time. I just started. seriously, in some things like that, we ought to try a variation from time to time so that our children don't grow up thinking it has to be done a certain way. My children tonight on the way to church, I think the preachings got to them recently. They said, why do we close our eyes when we pray? (laughs) Why do we close our eyes when we pray? What does the Bible say? It often says they lifted up their eyes to heaven. I said, Tim Weir doesn't. Tim Weir, when he prays at the table, for those of you who have had him in your home, he'll pray with his eyes open. It always reminds me of the fact, where did God say I had to close my eyes when we pray at the table? Now, with the kids, it's a good idea to, to use it a lot of the time. It keeps them from being distracted by each other, but it's important for us to think, has God commanded it, or is it a tradition? I've been ingrained from the earliest days of my youth that you close your eyes when you pray. Look at the personal pronouns. Jesus is dealing with Peter. Jesus is dealing with Peter, and he's using, in our older English, the personal pronouns of thou. And Peter is responding back to him that same way. In verse 6 we read, Peter said to the Lord, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? When you read thou, it is a singular personal pronoun. You can only be talking to one person generally when you use thou. In general, unless you're talking to a group collectively as a person, thou, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. This is personal conversation between Peter and Christ. Peter saith unto him, verse 8, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee, that's a singular pronoun, not thou, singular. clean but not all he's no longer talking about a particular part of Peter's body he's shifting by his pronoun shift and the Holy Spirit confirms what I'm telling you right in the 11th verse by saying those last words are applied to Judas those last words are applied to Judas Peter all the way through here understands foot washing he doesn't understand legal justification I mean when Je- when Jesus said if I don't wash you you have no part with me he didn't say wash my heart he said, Wash my hands and my head. Those were the two other exposed parts of his body that could be dirty. What is what does the exchange mean? What do the words of Jesus mean in verse ten? He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. It is assumed at a dinner that you have already taken care of the washing of your body. No host was ever so gracious to give you a whole bath. It is assumed that when you came to dinner, you had taken care of your body. But where did they bathe in those days? They often bathed in public bathhouses where, in walking from the bath or in walking from your private bath, you got your feet dirty again because you, they weren't covered. And so you had one last thing to take care of, and that's to wash your feet. You're, you're clean, every whit clean, except your feet. And foot washing was to take care of that last thing again as you sat at a meal or reclined at a meal because the rest of your body was assumed to be already clean. And Jesus is simply saying, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And then he goes on and makes a very brief and very vague warning of what was to take place with Judas. Now in verse 12, So after he had washed their feet, from that we assume he washed all twelve and had taken his garments and was set down again he said unto them know ye what I have done to you this was a very specific and very definite thing that Jesus Christ did it was not a symbolic act you know he took a little bit of wine and he took a little bit of bread and he made it into a supper into a symbolic supper we're told in 1st Corinthians 11 where are we supposed to eat to fill ourselves at home the supper we have in a church It's not to fill us. We're to eat at home. It's symbolic. Jesus didn't do anything symbolically. He got up from his place. He laid aside his garments. He girded himself with a towel. He took a basin. He filled it with water. And he literally, actually, veritably washed their feet. And their feet were dirty, according to what he said. And they needed to be washed. Then he put those instruments away. He girded himself and he sat back down where he was. And then he asked the question, Do you know what I have just done to you? Just like he said to Peter in verse 7, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Do you know what I just did to you? Now I want to ask you a question. If you were a 35-year-old Jew, and you'd eaten dinner in a few houses in your time, since you had traveled for the last three and a half years with the Savior, and it was a custom to provide water for the washing of feet, And they'd witnessed the washing of feet before by humble servants. When he said, know ye what I have done to you, was he asking them, do you know that I just washed your feet? Do you know that I just washed your feet? Now you'd have to be an imbecile or an infant not to have known that answer. Jesus is intending something beyond the washing of feet. Do you know what I have just done to you? The obvious implication of the question is they didn't know yet. Just like he told Peter, you don't know right now, but I'll explain it to you in a moment. And here he explains what he was trying to cover. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. You 12 men call me your master. You call me your Lord. If I'm your master and your Lord, and I want to show you this from other places of Scripture of conversations occurring right around this time. If I'm your master and your Lord, then you ought to be serving me is the implication. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. What do those words imply? What do those words include? I get waited on. I get served. If I'm your master, if I'm your Lord, if I'm your master, then you're my servant. And you ought to be serving me. But if I, your Lord and Master, according to verse 14, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. If I, the one who should have my feet washed, have got down and washed your feet, then you ought to get down and do the same to your brethren. Now let's remember something. And here's where the weak fall apart. And I say that kindly. It says, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. We'll get to the 15th verse that explains that in just a second. Because the 15th verse begins with that conjunctive for that explains what he meant by saying, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example of how you ought to treat one another. You should do to, you should do to each other as I have done to you. Remember, we have already established from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, He isn't saying, I've just poured a little little water in a basin and just dunked your feet. He is saying, you don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing something beyond that. I'm doing something more than that. That was simply an example of what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is service. I'm your master and your Lord. You ought to be serving me. You're my servants, but I served you, is the lesson that he's making here. Ye call me master and Lord, in verse 13, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. It wasn't a custom to wash each other's feet. It was a custom to provide water for the washing of feet. It wasn't a custom on the part of these disciples to get down and serve one another as Jesus had just served them. And he's saying, if I, your Master and Lord, did it, surely you can get down and you can do it. If I can serve you that way, you should serve each other that way for I have given you an example pray after this manner for I have given you an example pray after this manner that ye should do as I have done to you here is the lesson verse 16 verily verily I say unto you the servant is not greater than his Lord neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him if ye know this thing of foot washing, happy are ye if ye do it. Is that what it says in verse 17? If ye know these, plural, things, plural, happy are ye if ye do them, plural. Jesus is not talking about the example of foot washing. He's talking about the service and the humility and the submission necessary to wash another man's feet. He was simply gave an example. The point is, the servant is not greater than his Lord. I have just given you an example of how you ought to treat one another. If your Lord and Master can do it, and you're not as great as I am, in fact, you're lesser than I am, then you can certainly do it. And if you'll do these things, plural, happy are ye if you do them. What are the things? What are the things? The humility and the service and the submission necessary to ever perform such an example. Look at Matthew chapter 20 with me. Matthew chapter 20 is not at or near the Lord's Supper, but it is an example of the teaching of Christ to his disciples. And because the very words are used by the Savior in John 13 and verse 16, we want to look, or similar words are used in John 13, 16, We want to look at this text matthew chapter 20 beginning at verse 20 this was a perpetual problem he had with the disciples then came to him this is matthew 20 and verse 20 then came to him the mother of zebedee's children with her sons that's james and john worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him and he said unto her what wilt thou she saith unto him grant that these my two sons may sit the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. For those of you who like to read your Bible carefully, do you notice he's talking to the woman but they answer? Guess what they did? They had mommy do their dirty work. James, and just for those of you who like to read in passing notice. Jesus answered and said with a plural pronoun ye, but it was the mother that asked. She saith unto him in verse 21, Grant that these my two sons. Then he addresses them. Are ye able to drink the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. Now it says they had quite a problem here. Two brothers wanted the places of preeminence over the others. And so the ten were moved to indignation when they heard of it. And now look at the response of Jesus Christ in verse 25. Jesus called them unto him and said, And I'm surprised we don't find here the word children. Children, children. But it's implied. Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That is, the princes of the Gentiles exercise authority over the Gentiles. That's the plural pronoun, them. Verse 26, But it shall not be so among you, But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And what's another word that starts with S that can be substituted for the word minister? Servant. A minister and a servant are the very same thing. It shall not be so among you. The arrangement of my kingdom is not going to look like the kingdoms of the Gentiles where princes in elevated positions of authority exercise dominion over those under them. But... It shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, verse 26, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. That, brethren, is what Jesus Christ needed to teach his disciples on a number of occasions. Because they they were expecting a kingdom like the Gentiles had, where princes would have authority over others. They wanted those positions of authority. James and John had the audacity to ask Christ through their mother that we want to sit at your right hand and your left. The ten were moved with indignation to think the two were trying to cut them out. And the ten would have to report to the two. And Jesus gives a lesson here that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is a servant. And he that wants to be chief should learn to be a servant. And the greatest among my kingdom are those that minister, even as I came to minister and not to be ministered unto. Jesus Christ came, a minister himself, not to be waited upon. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Turn now to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Let me help you with the context. What would you guess the context of verse 19 is? The Lord's Supper. What about the context of verse 21? Are we still there? The identification of the betrayer? Now look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. Right here at the Last Supper. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. Isn't that nice to call yourself a benefactor because you're in a position of authority? Don't you benefit from me being an authority? It's a benefactor. But ye shall not be so, just like we have the lesson in Matthew 20. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief as he that doth serve. Now that's a good verse right there, isn't it? If you're in a room and you need someone to be a gopher, who do you pick on first? The youngest. But ye shall not be so. You, won't, you shouldn't be like the Gentiles in verse 26. He that is greatest, let him be as the younger. He that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater. Now listen to the reasoning of Jesus. Whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth. Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you, as he that serveth. In a normal situation, anywhere else in this world, the one that sits at meat and is waited on is the greater of the two. But Jesus said, he didn't even have to say it, it's implied, I'm the greater of us and I'm the one here that's serving. And that's the way my kingdom is based. My kingdom is based on service. I may be the greatest and I am the greatest and you call me the greatest, you call me Lord and Master, but I serve. And in my kingdom, if you're going to be great, you serve, you behave as the younger. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 29, And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And brethren, if you can't see the connection right there of Christ's lesson, christ lesson i appoint to you a kingdom i am going back to my father i will sit at my father's right hand this kingdom is now under your control you will sit on thrones judging this kingdom in my absence and he is teaching them how his kingdom is to be run as far as their relationships between themselves they are to serve if they want to be great they are not to take positions of authority over each other as the kings of the gentiles did and notice again please the context at the very end when Jesus knew that all things were committed into his hand and he came from God and he went to God and here it says he appointed them a kingdom but he gave them one great lesson before he did that. Come back to John 13. I will leave it up to the diligent and the concerned to look up all the examples of the word example, examples, example, and examples. four different words That occur in your New Testament, they're all in the outline. I dare you to look them all up and tell me if any one of them can be misconstrued to mean do precisely what was done as a public ordinance of public worship. In John chapter 13, what have we noticed? Jesus makes a very definite object lesson for his disciples. He does not wash Peter's feet and then say, Peter, now you wash mine. This is what I want you to do in the churches that are going to fill Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and it ought to be done even in that great island of the seas, United States of America. There is nothing like that. Nowhere in the Word of God is this instruction bound in a congregation as an ordinance of public worship of God. Jesus is giving an example to his disciples of how they are to treat one another. He specifically says as he's washing their feet, which was no surprise to them. They were grown men. They knew what he was doing. He said, you don't know what I'm doing, but I'll tell you hereafter. And he told them hereafter, you will serve one another just like I've served you. If I, your Lord and Master, who ought to be waited on, have served you, you ought to be able to do it to each other. And I want you to notice the context that we have here. The context. What we have in verses 18 through 30 are the identification of the betrayer. The Lord's Supper is in John 13. The decision is, where does it start? But the Lord's Supper is there because we have the identification of Judas in the same way he's identified in Matthew and Mark. And then Satan entered into Judas in verse 27 and he took the sop in verse 30 and he immediately went out and it was night. And brethren, that was the last night that our Lord was alive on this earth because the next time we read of Judas, it's the first verse of the, sixth, of the 18th chapter when he returns and finds Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and betrays him. I want you to notice the context. If you want to study the Bible and determine what Jesus Christ was intending to teach, look at the context of Luke 22 where they were having a strife among themselves at the Last Supper. And look at John chapter 13 and connect the words where he's talking about a Lord and Master is serving you, and if you're going to be in my kingdom, you're going to serve each other, given the fact that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit tells us Jesus washed their feet because he knew all things were given into his hand. He came from God and he went to God. What's that verse there for? It sounds like he's appointing to them a kingdom, and he's setting it straight how that kingdom's going to operate in his absence. He tells them they didn't know what he was doing, even though they knew he was washing their feet. He comes to the 16th verse and he says, Verily, verily, this is the lesson of a truth. I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him, if ye know these things, plural, happy are ye if ye do them. And those plural things are the things of love and service and submission that Christ is teaching his kingdom is based on. And an example of that was the fact that he went through the washing of all of their dirty feet. You have never seen a foot washing service like that one. And to go into John 13 and to come out of it with an ordinance where we line up and wash clean feet one on one. You do mine, I'll do yours. What, would you pray tell me the service that's being done? What service has been performed? No one's been served. You've got clean feet that are still clean. And you did it because they're going to do it to you. If anybody really believed in foot washing, do you know what they'd do? You'd be invited over to their house for dinner, and while you're sitting there on the couch with something cold to drink before you have your evening meal, they'd come out and peel off your socks and shoes and wash your feet. You know what? All these people who love foot washing, I've never heard of them doing it. You say, well, it's because Jesus said to do it in the church. Come on now, show me. If they really want to serve, why don't they do it in a situation like that? That's when Jesus did it. That's when it was always done in Scripture, feet were washed before a meal. If you really want to serve someone, you're not going to line up from across from them on a Sunday and say, you don't say it, it's just implied you do mine and I'll do yours. How about washing someone's feet in your home? I want you to think about this tradition that a few Baptist churches have taken up and require as an ordinance of public worship, show where it is ordained as an ordinance of public worship. From First Timothy 5.10, I'll prove that it was not practiced among the members of a church. It was simply a private domestic duty that a widow could do in order to show extraordinary character. The qualifications of 1 Timothy 5, 9, and 10 are extraordinary qualifications. They're not ordinary qualifications. The qualifications of a bishop are not ordinary qualifications, they're extraordinary. They're limiting qualifications. Why don't I have to go through such efforts to convince you that you don't need to pray every day the Lord's Prayer? Because in our circle of Baptist churches that has not been a tradition. You understand that one. This issue in the circle of Baptist churches to which some of us have been acquainted and related in some way or another has practiced this. And we have practiced this. That's why it takes so much effort. Everyone here wouldn't have a problem with understanding that the Lord's Prayer is simply an example of a type of prayer. Foot washing is simply an example of a type of service, getting down off your high horse instead of assuming a position of authority like the Gentiles did with each other and being willing to serve one another. Some will argue that Jesus instituted a symbolic act. I won't deal with this at length because we already have touched on it. Did Jesus anywhere in here say that foot washing was a symbol? Example and symbol, brethren, are not even close. A symbol is a figurative picture or a likeness of of another thing that has a far deeper and very different meaning. Foot washing was not a symbol. Foot washing was a real act of service, and if you really want to serve someone in the act of foot washing, then do it in the privacy of your home. Do it at a dinner. Do it where you can do it for them, and you're not expecting them to do it to you. Do it when they're not expecting it from you. Believe me, they will think you are something special. And I don't say that with any laughter. There wouldn't be a thing wrong for you to wash the feet of another person in your home as a sign of service. It is just not a custom of our day because our feet are generally clean all the time. There are other ways that you can serve. A moment underwater like Orville and John Pernod did this morning It's not much of a burial and a resurrection. It's just a picture of it. But the Bible tells us it's a picture. That little thimble of wine and that little piece of bread that we ate for the Lord's Supper is not really a supper. We're to eat at home and have our suppers. The Bible tells us it's a figurative, emblematic, symbolic act. Nowhere is foot washing that way. But do you know how we use it when we did do it? it became a ritualistic ceremony with symbolic value because everyone understood we weren't serving anyone there were no dirty feet getting clean and there was no one voluntarily serving another person without them without expecting the same thing in return it became a ritualistic show you say well i did it with i did it with an honest and sincere heart well i thank god you did and i did too that you did it with an honest and sincere heart, that you were doing what Christ expected of you, but you weren't serving. What kind of service did you give? That's the lesson of Christ's kingdom. We are to serve one another. We should be willing to serve one another. As Abigail wanted to serve David, as Jesus said he came into this world not to minister. I mean, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Jesus Christ came to give. And that is the whole lesson of Christ's life, is to give instead of get. The lesson of John 13 is giving instead of getting. The one that sits at meat ought to be getting, but Jesus said, I'm the greatest, and I do the giving, because that is the fundamental lesson of my kingdom, that you give. And he goes on in John chapter 13 and says a new commandment, I give unto you that ye love one another. And all men shall know that ye are my disciples by the love ye have one to another, not by the mark of washing feet once a quarter. It will be by the love that you have one to another. We should be willing to submit to one another, just like I asked John and Orville this morning. Are you willing to submit to these people and make their desires and their things more important than your own? Jesus gave that lesson in the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. There's an outline available for your study if you want to study this more carefully. There are verses and arguments that I have not used. Most of it's been covered today. If you have questions, I ask you to follow the Bible procedure. Receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind. Receive it. Don't reject it. Receive it with all readiness of mind and search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. And you try to establish footwashing in the way we've done it as an obligation on our church you will not be able to do it and once if you think about all the arguments that i've given you i don't need to repeat any of them may god bless us in this matter to have moved ourselves one step closer to practicing religion as he intended for gentile churches of the new testament and brethren i don't have any more surprises for you i don't like any surprise like this for some of you it wasn't a surprise at all if you've watched our practice, we haven't watched feet in several years. There are, no, there are no surprises. All you have to do is ask me and I'll tell you. There aren't any. But in Luke chapter 22, where we have the Lord's Supper, you need to deal with it. And so I wanted to deal with it in full today. And may God bless us for trying to follow His Word as carefully and most of all, as consistently as possible.